So why is it important that I showed this to you? Because it's not just a cinematic replay of all that happened, but it must be a realization of a war that all of us are in. Now we all know if you are in Christ that we don't fight against flesh and blood, but it's a spiritual battle that we wage. But if we only leave it there as a spiritual battle to wage, then we will turn a blind eye to the physical outcomes of a spiritual war. You see, we are all in a war of some sort. And yet there is even a more troublesome battle. However, nonetheless, it must be fought with all of our hearts, minds, and souls. We live in a state that only once heard about the things that we now see in our state. From the lower 48, although now it is the lower 48 that are perplexed by the extreme shift that we have seen, and surely, indirectly, and directly felt to some extent. So it is time to wake up. We can no longer hope for things to change and be bystanders of what we do see happening, particularly as the church, the body of Christ. We see also that it is the body of Christ that shall be judged first for being stagnant. And so the essence of today is not only to be a challenger, but also an encourager. If anything you come away with today is to be encouraged, and I'm going to show why, but also challenged, and I will show why. So I'm going to pray again, and we can start up Facebook Live if it hasn't started yet, and if it has, welcome. <laughs> it's on. Father, you have created each person in this room. You have created, by the authority of your voice, each person around the globe. But for today, help us to focus in on this moment, this time. For tomorrow it will be history, so let us be in the present as you continue to shape, mold, and form us to send us out on mission intentionally by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, uh, we're talking about running to the battle. And I work in social work. And there's a lot of politics, there's a lot of bureaucracy, uh, but there's a lot of running too. And God has me in a place where I've been able to be shaped and molded in such a way that is going to allow for me to go to the next place, which is California. I want to give just a little quick backdrop or um, expound on what I'm going to go do. So I'm going to be the director of family ministry as well as for global missions. And I was talking to one of my really good brothers just the day before yesterday, and he says, you know, I'm concerned that, about you. I said, why are you concerned? He says, you're going to California. 
I said, but why are you concerned? Well, you're going to California. And I said, tell me what concerns you about me going to California. And he said, well, you are an outspoken person and you're right-leaning. I said, what's right-leaning? And I knew what he meant, but I wanted him to tell me what concerned his heart about what the Lord is calling me to. And he said, well, you're right-leaning, so you're more conservative than you are liberal. And, and I said, well, I consider myself to be more bipartisan. The liberals think I'm conservative, and the conservatives think I'm liberal. And I said, and he said, and you're a big black man who actually protects himself by using my Second Amendment right. And at any rate, at any rate, I told him, and I said, Tom, thank you so much for sharing your heart. I said, but if I go and I die doing what the Lord is calling me to do, I'm okay with that. If I go and I die because of my own stupidity and foolishness, I'm not okay with that, nor should you be. But I'm okay with going to the battle. I'm absolutely okay with it because of who's calling me there. So now we're going to go through several different scriptures. So go ahead and get your tongue ready to lick your fingers and start turning pages. If you brought your physical Bible, that's great, and I would tell you what page to go to. If you are using your app, there are no pages. You just got to find it. So our first scripture is going to be in Acts chapter 1, specifically verses 1 through 8. All right. Now this is Luke, the historian. Luke was a historian. He, he's writing. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive, speaking to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. Pause. The kingdom of God is the authority of God. That's important to, to take note of. It is the authority of God. And we're going to see where the disciples misstep and where we have often misstepped as the church. And while, saying, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. John baptized with water, but you, my disciples, those who are in Christ, will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. Hey, you know, that's why I got a good case. All right. Am I still center? All right. Now, 
where was I at? Thank you. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The disciples and those who were deciding to follow Jesus were still waiting for the historical promise from of old centuries to restore the kingdom to God's chosen people. And he reminds them, it's not about a physical kingdom because Rome was wreaking havoc in that time. Dictatorship was all over the place and nothing was, quote-unquote, safe. If we were to look at it today, we would look at Alaska, and many of us have said that have been here for quite a while. I grew up here. Alaska is not the same place that it used to be by any means. As a matter of fact, last night I heard two shots, and I said, well, Lord, protect them. We hear more sirens than we ever hear now. And we have raising and rising more and more issues when will you restore the kingdom? Legislation, when will you do something? Governor, president, whoever it may be, when will you do something? We miss the point when we look at it that way. Father, God, what am I to do? What am I to do in this time and in this moment that balances both the spiritual warfare as well as the physical warfare Meaning, how do I engage where I am and speak as I should to bring about change that is empowered by the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, and God the Father, the one true triune God. What am I to do as your disciple? Point number one, what do we need to know? Not when the, or what do we need to know, if not, when the restoration will come? We've cried and we've begged and we said, when is change going to come? Otis Redding saying in the, back, you know, back in the day, but it's still true for today. It's been a long, a long time coming. But I know a change is going to come. That was saying during harsh times, during much bloodshed. When will the change come that is promised to us? When will we see hope? Well, I'm going to tell you according to the scriptures. Over and over again, in Scripture, we see God declare to his people to be courageous and bold, that he will not leave us or forsake us, that he has gone before us. His purpose for his bride, the church, is to bring about his glory. But this is not always a pretty picture. In fact, 
it can be downright messy. One of the things that we hear a lot of times for folks that don't want to go to church or have been to church and said, I'm not going back, is they're all hypocrites. It's such a mess. It's so horrible. And I don't want to dismiss that claim. But I don't want to fully embrace it either. Because all of us have family, bloodline family, as well as church family. And if one thing that we all do know in this room is that family can be and is messy. And so therefore, uh, when we get to the place of, well, they're just hypocrites, well, you too. <laughs> you know, I'm a, <laughs> people are going to be people, and I'm a people too. But we must raise the standard. And that standard starts from the inside. The standard starts from the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, to change us from the inside. Because if we only change the outside behavior of our messiness, nothing has changed at all. So then, in fact, it can be downright messy because humans are messy, myself included. But even more than messy humans, we have an insidious enemy. And I use the word insidious because it points directly. It is the most nastiest, horrific. There is nothing good about it. Like the pneumonia or the flu that will take your life in a drop of a dime. The enemy came to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus Christ came that we may have life and life abundantly in him. In him, not in the culture in which we live. In Christ alone. Imago Dei. God's grace alone. Now, so... If I discipline myself, and you discipline yourself, if we discipline ourselves, not just to know of his promises, but to know intimately his promise, and the context of his promise, we may start to see even more clearly our role in his promise based on the covenant that he has made with us and in us as his disciples who are in Christ alone. There's two different no's primarily that I want to, sh that I want to talk about, that even Jesus talked about. As a matter of fact, on that day they will come to me and they will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we heal? Didn't we raise the dead? Didn't we heal the sick? I never knew you. Apart, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. The word knew is gnosko, to intimately know. I never intimately knew you. You knew of me. With the seven sons of Sceva, what, what was, there was three, three times. Paul I know. Jesus, I know. Who are you? 
you're naked and running scared. Even in that scripture there, Paul, I know, is not Gnosko. I know of Paul. Jesus, I know. You, I don't know who you are, and you don't either. Because you're using a name that you have no right to use, no authority to use by any means whatsoever. So therefore, I have the authority to take dominion over you. You will know today. (laughs) And so then, church can be messy, but we must be disciplined. People are messy. So what does it mean then to be disciplined? Well, for some people, it would be going home or wherever you may find yourself and opening up the Bible. And maybe for the first or few times, you're reading a verse or two. And that's totally fine. But it can't stay that way. You can't pick up the living word of God and say, I'm only going to take this little piece because I feel good. I wrestle with the word of God because there's things that I don't like. They challenge me, but they should because I should be changing from the inside. So therefore, it does. And I get to know who Jesus really is. I get to know who the Holy Spirit is. I get to know who the Father is, and he draws me to him, even in the midst of the turmoil of, but that's not fair. I don't like this, but I didn't do that. Well, what do I need to do? Come to me, because I'm changing you from the inside out. That was the main point, one of the main points of contention with Jesus and the Pharisees. You look great on the outside, but on the inside, you are whitewashed tombs. You're dead. If you are not dead, then you are alive. And if you are alive, it cannot just be in the physical sense, because everyone in this room, when we die, We'll go into a ground and go right back to the form that we once are really what we are. We just, what? Deteriorate. But this isn't all of us. There's something more. Now, let's take a scripture that most of us have heard and often quoted out of its context. Jeremiah 29, 11. It's a feel-good scripture, just like John 3.16 is a feel-good scripture. Uh, but it is actually not supposed to be quoted as a feel-good scripture. It is a promise, but it is not by any means just a singular promise. It is a promise for God's people. So I'll read first verse 11, but we will indeed read verse 8 through 13. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not welfare check, but for your good and not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. So let's just stop for a minute. 
this was written when God's people were actually being in exiled. This comes from the prophet to say, I'm coming for you. But now let's read it in its full context. In verse 8, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Now, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a hope and a future or a future and a hope. Then, this is, he's talking to God's people. This isn't the Gentile nation. He's talking to Israel. Then you will call upon me and, and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Now, the prophet Jeremiah answers the disciples' question. When will you fulfill the kingdom? When will you bring the kingdom back to Israel? He answers that right there. When you call out to me. And it is not up to you when the kingdom will be handed back over. It is up to you as I point you to go to be missional. Don't worry about when the kingdom's coming. Worry about telling people about the kingdom that's coming. Now point two. Where does the glory and the presence of God reside? Now, earlier I, I prayed and I said, you know, I don't want to invite you, Holy Spirit, into the place. I want to thank you for already being here. I know that it can be semantics, but I want to take a closer look at when we say, Lord, we want to invite you into a place, especially as one who is in Christ. He's already here. He's already here. There's nothing wrong by any means inviting God into any place. But take note, he's already here. But we need to say it verbally also to write in our mind who we are in the presence of. So therefore, in Exodus chapter 40, it is a foreshadow. Check this out. This just, it didn't blow my mind. It made me pause and be more thankful for what God has done, did do, and is continuing to do. So Exodus 40, verse 34 through 38 says this. We see, or rather, we see a foreshadow of the promise of Jesus that Jesus declares to his disciples in Acts 1. Then... 
a cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled, filled it, and the glory, or rather, sorry, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Wherever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they didn't set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night. In the sight of all the house of Israel throughout their journeys, Exodus chapter 40 verse 34 through 38. Now in Acts, we, in Acts chapter 2, we see this again. But this time, God's presence doesn't reside in the tabernacle put together by men with meticulous instruction from God. Rather, he resides in the temple that he infinitely and meticulously created by the word of his authority. Psalms 139.14 says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Other translations say we are remarkably and wondrously made. The psalmist is crying out in, one, in Psalms 139 about all of the troubles that he has faced. He says, I can't get away from you anywhere I go. I can go to Sheol. I can go to the heavens. I can go lay in my bed. I can go on another journey. I can't get away from you. And you knew me before I ever had one day on this earth. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And I was fearfully and wonderfully made. You know me. A friend of mine, um, a friend of ours actually, Joe Oval, we were out one day flying drones. And Joe is so amazing. Uh, He's so, he has a childlike faith in this way. He picked up a blade of grass And he was looking at it, and I thought, what are you doing, Joe? We're flying drones. You're picking up grass. That's what lawnmowers are for. But it's what Joe said that that caught me. He said, "God, God made this piece of grass, and he intricately wove it together. But we are so much more intricately woven together than this blade of grass. That is beautiful. Not only is it beautiful, it is profound. And not only is it profound, it is the absolute objective truth of the character of God. He took more care in creating the crown of his creation, which is humanity, than the blade of grass. But all creation points to the creator. And as humanity, we have the ability to engage in a way that no other creation can. But that's what we were created for, to be in relationship with the creator. Now, 
<clears throat> Furthermore, we see a prime example of this in John chapter 1. Now, John chapter 1, 1, we, most of us know this. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. But when we go to verse 14, we see the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word used in this verse for dwell is actually tabernacle. He tabernacled. The Son, God the Son, took on the very flesh that he created and dwelt 100% man, 100% God. His very presence in us. We behold his glory and his grace. Here is God in flesh, tabernacled. Now, Jesus tabernacled among us, and in Acts, we see God do this in all of those then and all of those now and to come. He makes us his tabernacle. You see, it is the presence of God in us that not only guides and leads us, it is God who charges us to go into all the world, making disciples and building authentic, intentional relationships that can be mimicked and replicated by the power and authority of God who dwells in us. As Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ or imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Well, when I first heard that verse and people uh, quoting it, I used to think, especially as a kid, because I grew up in a, in a, going to Christian school and going to chapel, and it was really fire and brimstone. You know, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to hell. I can agree with that, but there was no grace. There was no reason. Um, and not only can I agree with it, it's biblical. That's, that's what Jesus says himself. However, let's think about it. Let's just think about it for a second. Follow me as I follow Christ is not a statement from Paul to say, I'm perfect, follow me because I follow Jesus. In our current culture, we, we really dress up. And we, look, we try to put on our Sunday best, but throughout the week, we're really a mess. Even on Sundays, sometimes we're a mess. But it wasn't until I, I had uh, started getting into a discipleship group where I started to really understand that it's not about becoming perfect. I need to become perfect. I need to stop drinking, smoking, watching what I shouldn't watch, you know, doing what I shouldn't do, hanging with who I shouldn't hang with, dot, 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 dot fill in the blank. Rather, it's about me following as an imperfect man 
the perfect one. As the perfect one changes from the inside out, this unperfect man, into the image and likeness of Christ. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Continue to conform your mind. Is your spiritual sacrifice to be transformed daily by the scriptures so that we may put on the mind of Christ because as Christians we have the righteousness of Christ. So therefore, get the word in intentionally, purposefully as he changes us and allows for us to see as we ought to see, not how it's been painted for us to see by others. I can easily stand here and preach and deliver this sermon, and you can go home and, and say either that was great or that was horrible or, or man, I got my, my fix for the week. But I challenge you not to do that, not to just let it be a fix, but for it to be a challenge to go and dig deeper because I can only give to you what I've been given by the living God. There's something he wants to give to each of you. That, in its essence, is a part of him. And that part of him is not to be taken lightly either. He wants you to know who he is. And there's a reason why. Now, point number three. And the final point, if Jesus said that the temple is to be a place for all nations, then we must be a people of all nations. There used to be flags that hung in here from all nations. It was pretty cool. Maybe they were getting washed. But in the state that we live in, did you know that we're actually one of the most diverse states in our nation? Specifically, our school district, which is quite amazing. We are a people of all nations. Now, in Revelation, or rather, I'm skipping ahead, I apologize. So, in Isaiah, rather. Isaiah 56, verse 7. God declares that his house would be a house for all nations. Those that were apart from the original fold of Israel. The word for all people or nations in Isaiah is am. A-M. Just am. And, And so... It literally means nations, all nations, all people. So in Mark 11, chapter 7, or not chapter 7, in chapter 11 of Mark, verse 17, Jesus refers to the same scripture and uses the word nations or ethnos, Greek, you know, in Greek, which in Greek is designated for all peoples, as well as where we derive our word ethnicity. All people, all nations. 
if we're not a people of all nations, and that is not what we are focused on, then we are siloed in a country club atmosphere of the church and not doing what we're called to do. We're called to go. Even after this, when we have our, our meeting, the church was, was made or called together to be collected together to share with one another what God is doing with them in the relationship while we're in this world. Paul says we're in the world, not other world. That means simply we're here just like everybody else. The big difference for us, we have the living God residing in us. And therefore, we are to infect, affect in the world, but not deflect from the world in practice. Now, here's the takeaway for the current day and God's people right now. Us in this room and downstairs, wherever our church is that proclaims Christ as their Savior and has Christ in them as their Savior, this is who this is for. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, we see the essence of the mission heart, the mission heart of God in its finality when it comes to all nations and the purpose by which the only begotten Son came. Verse 9. After this I looked. This is John talking. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is also yet another fruition to a foreshadow. Where do we see this? The triumphal entry of Jesus. The triumphal entry that is in Matthew chapter 21, specifically verse 9. What do they lay before him who rode in on a colt that was never ridden before? They, lied down, they laid their robes down and palm branches. Palm branches were a sign of royalty. To lie those before the king coming in on a colt that was never ridden before was more than significant. I found a nice colt and nobody rode it and I just so customized for me. But it is significant because it shows his royalty coming in. That's why the Pharisees had such an issue. Why don't you tell them to be quiet? Because they're yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna to the highest. Hosanna. Savior. That's what Hosanna means. He who comes to save. The very thing that they were crying out when Jesus came in the triumphal entry is the very thing that they're crying out in heaven. Blessed be the God that saves. Salvation belongs to him and him alone. That's it. There is no other salvation. There is no other way. There is no other redemption. There is no other sanctification. There is no other end of story. 
And so it is him, Christ, the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world, the one who we cry out, Hosanna, to the highest, whom salvation belongs to, and we, we are his people. We are his disciples. We are the beloved. We are the bride. He is the groom. He is the king. He is the master. He is the friend. He is the father. He is the mother. He is the uncle. He is the grandmother, the grandfather. He is the epicenter of intentional, authentic relationship that changes us from inside out. And because he is, and because he dwells in us, later on, I'm skipping a little bit, but later on in in chapter 2 of Acts, because this is important, 120 have gathered. What is it that happens in the, in the upper room with 120 people? Right. But specifically, what do we see? We hear a loud rushing wind, and inevitably smoke actually fills that room. And tongues of fire that rest upon all who are in Christ. He tabernacled. He tabernacled in his people the very essence of God, showing his approval and choice of who he will dwell in. And the very next thing that happens is they go outside and they start speaking in numerous languages. Scripture says, as the Holy Spirit gave utterance, they thought they were drunk. Peter said, no, we're not drunk. Nobody's drunk. It's too early for that. It's just too early. We're not drunk. This is by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let me tell you about the God of the Scriptures that you know about, that you actually murdered but rose again. And on that day, over a thousand, more than Mike, over, what was it, four to 5,000 were added that day. Point being, they heard the gospel and they heard the truth. They saw something that shouldn't have really been happening. Like, wait a minute, no, they can't really be talking our language. They're not learned. Why is that important for us? Because if we only act as if We are just Christians that are just here and waiting to go to heaven. We will miss the boat. We'll miss the point, and we will not follow through on what we are supposed to be doing. What do I mean by that? Each of us in here has a gift. Each of us in here has been created on purpose by God, fearfully and wonderfully made. If you are in Christ, you have access to know what you're supposed to be doing. You have the ability to say, what is my mission? Whatever it may be. But you don't have the option to not 
do anything at all. Otherwise, you'll be like the servant who had one talent and was more afraid to engage in the world around you to use that talent to be profitable for your master, for our master, only to reach the gate whenever that may be for any of us, whether that is when Jesus comes back or when we shut our eyes. Irregardless, the question will be, why didn't you do what I told you to do? Why didn't you do what I called you to do? The promised land was not just an invitation, it was a command. The church is established not as just an invitation, but as a mission and a command to go out to all nations, all people, and engage in intentional, healthy relationships that reflect the relationships, or the relationship, rather, of the one who we have been called by. Over the past eight months, I have wrestled, I have wept, and I have been very lonely. And I've been very upset in different moments. But here's why. Because the Lord has been calling me to go do something that is bigger than I am and only he can do. And as I've studied in the scriptures and read and watched, he's reminded me, it's not an invitation, son. It's a command. You must go. Everything that I've put in you is on purpose for my glory. You get the benefit of using it and engaging and loving to do it. But if you do not go, it will be worse off for you than it would, would have been or than it was for Israel when I put them in the desert to wander for 40 years. That surprised me. God said, I put them in the wilderness to wander because they wouldn't listen. So with the challenge of being intentional about growing in Christ, this is my encouragement to you. We have an opportunity in this state, each one of us, not just to make a big difference and keep moving, but to plant seed for what's coming. This winter, is going to be treacherous. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I won't be here for it. But, <laughs> but what I have seen is, is our people are suffering. And they're suffering tremendously. And there are many cries that have been heard but there's been very slow movement. I'm speaking as objectively as possible so that I may stay on the encouraging route that I want to end on. There's things that we can do. And the first people that really are going to feel the sting will be the church because we are held to a higher standard. You know, don't worry about the government. You know, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, to God what belongs to God. Who do you belong to, the government or to God? So then, therefore, that's who we take our orders from.
like it or not. You will wrestle over it. But here's the deal. We have the living God of the universe, the creator, tabernacling in us. Fire and smoke. His presence is on us and in us. That was Jesus, one of Jesus' prayers in John chapter 17. Father, let them be one as you and I are one, so that they are, I am in, as I am in you, you are in me, and they are in I, and they are in you. He is in us. We are walking tabernacles, temples, not made by man, but made by the very God who calls us to himself for his glory so that we may know him. Gnosko. Know him intimately. Intimately. 